the EMS Garage is a production of emsradio.com. You can find us on Facebook, just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter, at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com, or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Garage. Okay, I got dead. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. I'm Chris Monterey, your host. We're back from EMS Expo, and uh, apparently Jamie and Davis and I are heading to blog world next week and we're gonna be having some fun out there and uh so you won't get a show next week you'll get a you'll get a previously recorded show from expo which is actually really good and a lot of fun and i'm pretty i was actually pretty happy to be out at expo last week and met scott keir and got to hang out with jamie davis and saw steve worth as he ran through the expo hall really fast um hung out with kyle david bates and doggone it that guy beat me at darts and we didn't get to see we didn't get to see James, but he, I'm I'm assured he'll be at the next one when his child is nearly one year or over one, nearly somewhere in there. So uh, I'm your host Chris Montero. Tonight we're talking about EMS liability and some of the interesting things and some of the one of the cases that just came out of Missouri. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But let me introduce our esteemed panel. And if you have or if you will listen to the end of the podcast, you'll actually hear about the equivalent of the EMS Sasquatch, and that would be Mr. Tim Noonan. Hello, sir. I <laughs> thought I was supposed to be hiding. <laughs> You're not hiding, I promise. You're still here. You're still here. How yes, are you? You can't see me. Mm. I'm doing okay. Right on. I'm glad and, to... And, uh, you know, it, I don't look that much like Sasquatch. I know I've got you a don't. little less hair. I've met you. I have I a little less hair. It's just hard to photograph you. Um, well, uh, Mark and Justin did, and they used uh, my blanked-out image for uh, that uh, promotion they did on the travel to uh, meet them in England, and you know they had to blank out my image. That's almost awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Well, welcome aboard tonight, sir. Thank you. All right. Mr. Jamie Davis. Hello, sir. Vegas, baby. I know. I'm excited. <laughs> oh, yeah. It seems like I haven't talked to you in forever, and we spent, like, far too many waking moments <laughs> together <laughs> back at Expo. a lot of fun in Dallas. It was a good, it was a good time. It if you've never time. been to an EMS Expo, you've got to go. Next year's in Vegas, and I'm hoping we're there. I we, may, we may just stay there. Let's just go to Blog World and just, like, you know. Become Vegas people, dude. Three days of Vegas. Is Some gold much. chains, and you know, I'll slick my hair back. I have to grow sideburns and oh, look cool. like a little mini Elvis. Two of us can walk next to each other. It'll be like you know, big and small. All right. Funny story from 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 Expo. I walk up to Brad Buck, and he goes, "You're shorter than I thought you were." I'm like, "Really? Thanks a lot." I must sound I, I sound taller on radio. That's good speaker. Thing. The speaker adds the speaker adds six inches. So yeah, it was his first things out of his mouth. Not hi, nice to meet you. Nothing. You're shorter than I thought you were. And anyway, so it was pretty funny. Also joining us tonight, Mr. Steve Worth. Hello, sir. Hey, great to be here to be your periodic guest. The e- I know I love having you on. I love having you on our show, and it's fun. I like using Skype, and it's good. Good discussions we always have. That's right. Well, you said you you have a taped up headset. We better fix that. Uh, I got a new one tonight just for, oh. this, for this session. It's well, a brand new Plantronics. It's great. Oh, those are, those are, that's one of my favorites, the Plantronics. Oh, yeah, it works good. really well. Very nice. So we're all raring to go here. Right on. Well, nice to, nice to hear you, sir. Also joining us tonight, Mr. Scott Keir. Hello, sir. Is it Chris, Keir? how are you doing tonight? Is it Keir? It's Keir. Keir. Okay. All right. Keir. Keir. You got it. All right. I always mispronounce Chris Sabalero's name, so I figured, why not? I'll go, I'll go for everybody's. And I am also in the club. I, too, had a Tim Noonan sighting once. Nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> right I deny on. it. 
Have you? And, and <laughs> Most people do when they meet me. Yes. <laughs> have you recovered from? It was an imposter. A fake yeti. He might be the. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Uh, well, thanks for joining us tonight, Mr. Scott Keir. Thank you, uh, Mr. Kyle David Bates in the other corner, trying to beat me at darts. Trying? Yeah, whatever. Wait, you meant trying, Scott? Can you refresh, Mr. Montgomery? Oh, there was there was no trying. There there was definitely no trying there. I believe there are two bullets thrown, even though one was thrown out. That is correct. Yeah, it was stolen from us by the judges, so we just had to beat him again. Yeah, that hurts. You know, I believe there's some smack talking at the, one of the last episodes of uh, Emma's Garage. All right, I lost, I lost. Fine, fine. Thank fine. you. All right, Thank you. I lost. Thanks a lot. That's great. Well, I'm so proud you won. And next time, you won't be so lucky. No, I was no, being no. nice that night. You're being nice. Nah. <laughs> nice well, try. Okay, my ringer. Okay, so I did have a ringer that was going to come in. And uh, it was Chris Sabalero. He was a, he was a former semi-pro dart thrower. In his day, he only quit three years ago, and he was going to be my—he was going to be my ringer, saying, "Hey, you said you were playing a Chris tonight. Here's my ringer," and I was going to bring him in and totally beat you, but he didn't show because he was hanging out with his wife or something. I don't know. Anyway, I paid him off. I know. Nice job. So next time, it's on, baby. It's on. I know. Your wife said I ruined you, though. No, oh, just because I have a bed at like nine o'clock now. <laughs> Every night. Every night, I'm still recuperating. <laughs> Dude, that's sad. But uh, I'm so glad. So that that just proves that I win. I don't, have to go to bed. I don't have to go to bed every night at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. Well, no, I think Kyle's suffering from the same thing that I am. It's been termed by an epi junkie as post-expo depression. Ah, oh, there you go. Yes. That's exactly what it was. That I could yep. that, that I can understand. Absolutely. I have to have a chaperone. So I, my wife's coming to Vegas with me. So. <laughs> yeah, that may happen with me as well next year. Uh, that's awesome, uh, Mr. James Warmoth. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. The sleep deprived James Warmoth. Absolutely. I will, I will admit. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us tonight, and uh, it's always fun to have you guys on. And so this week we wanted to talk about a decision, and I actually found it on gems.com. It was a decision by a court in Missouri talking about EMS or the, um, well, I'm not going to do this justice, but basically saying that EMS, the responders on an EMS call did not have immunity from um, suit. And I'm going to let Steve talk about the actual case. Cool. Okay. Well, this was a uh, court of appeals decision in Missouri, so that meant that uh, on this is an appeal. So the trial court here in this particular case uh, granted summary judgment in favor of the publicly employed EMS personnel in their agency, uh, meaning the case was basically thrown out of court. And the uh, plaintiffs appealed the case uh, to the appeals court. And the basis the judge threw the court, uh, case out on was uh, the basis that he felt uh, they had official immunity uh, because of the law in Missouri that provides that type of immunity to uh, public uh, employees for negligent acts that are committed during the performance of their official duties. Um, the appeals court disagreed and said that immunity in this particular case did not apply. It helps to just kind of go through the facts of what actually happened, because this is the kind of case, frankly, that we see a lot of uh, in all the cases that we deal with at Page, Wolfberg, and Worth. Uh, we would say that the issue of leaving someone behind uh, and Getting called back to a call that you were on, uh, the abandonment type situation is probably the one that's fraught with the most potential liability other than some major catastrophic vehicle wreck. Uh, so it, it's a big area of concern for, for everybody out there in EMS. Well, apparently in this case, uh, it was July 10th of 2008, and the patient uh, was complaining of chest pains and difficulty breathing. They called 911. And the uh, unit was dispatched by the fire protection district to his home, uh, meaning it was a public agency. When they say it's a fire protection district, that's important. And it was staffed by an EMT and a paramedic. Uh, they got on the scene, did a primary survey 
uh, after within about ten minutes after the initial call was placed, and uh, they uh, followed up, uh, did a secondary, uh, obtained vital signs, and basically uh, they, uh, according to the court opinion, diagnosed the decedent with acid reflux and recommended a treatment of over-the-counter Maalox and Gaviscon. Uh, believing that the patient was in no immediate medical danger, according to the court, they left the home 15 minutes after arriving. I think that's a significant point to make. The next morning, at 10.30 in the morning, uh, the decedent, uh, he was still alive at that time, obviously, called 911, still complaining of difficulty breathing, chest pain uh, unit was dispatched again, uh, arriving within five minutes, different crew this time, different crew. And after they found him experiencing pain across his chest and was back, shortness of breath, he was diaphoretic, nausea, vom- you know, nausea, all that jazz, uh, started him on oxygen, aspirin, EKG, and uh, he was admitted to the hospital uh, and was diagnosed with cardiac arrest, pulmonary embolism, and, and uh, consequently died uh, that afternoon. And, of course, in a case like this, the patient is deceased. We now have a surviving spouse uh, uh, filed a wrongful death suit against uh, the EMS personnel and their employer, uh, alleging they were negligent in the care they provided when they responded to the first call. Uh, and uh, they f- ultimately, after discovery was held, they filed a motion for summary judgment, and the, and the judge, as we mentioned, granted that motion. And uh, basically, the trial court found they were immune to lawsuit based on official immunity in that state. And then it went up to appeal, and essentially the appeals court reversed, meaning uh, said, wait, uh, judge, you made a mistake here, and we're we're reactivating this case and sending it uh, back for trial. Uh, And basically what the court said in this case is that they weren't entitled to um, official immunity in this particular case uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, They certainly were publicly employed, uh, which, you know, would entitle them presumably to that immunity. But basically what the court said here was this immunity is really designed to protect uh, government employees during their official duties in situations involving EMS, fire, and police when they're involved in rapidly evolving emergency situations where they have limited information and they have to make snap decisions and so forth. And the courts looked at this situation and said, whoa, wait a minute, basically, these folks were really acting in a non-emergent situation. They treated this patient as non-emergent to the point of suggesting he take some antacids uh, and uh, said, well, in that particular case, uh, the immunity doesn't apply because it only applies in rapidly evolving emergency situations. And here they had time to think about this. And uh, as a result, uh, since this was not a true emergency situation, the court said official immunity did not apply and uh, sent the case back uh, for trial. So now we don't know what will happen with the case. Typically, what does happen in these situations is uh, that uh, usually uh, the the parties will then get together and try to settle again. And, of course, that oftentimes these cases settle without a trial, but of course, then this could go to trial as we've seen in a few other cases. So that's the gist of the facts of the case and what happened. Uh, we can talk more about the different types of immunities that are involved and the different types of uh, standards for liability that uh, must be uh, that are applied in various situations. And I think that'd be a good thing to talk about. But I just want to say that. This case is is typical of the kind of case where some bad judgment uh, at the scene can cause uh, a major catastrophe in someone's life. Uh, And I like to say this is a classic example of where we see second guessing entering into the picture of of what we do out in the field. And uh, and frankly, we're seeing more of these kinds of cases uh, in our office here. And I think you've seen some of the headlines of the last couple of years where uh, 
you know, these kinds of situations can result in a lot of liability for the public. You know, the public doesn't expect a whole lot of us, but one of the things they do expect is that, uh, you know, we'll arrive promptly, we'll show up with compassionate, competent personnel, and that, you know, if we want to go to the hospital, we'll ultimately go to the hospital and be transported there. Uh, we won't have an accident in the ambulance. And any time when you have a situation where you get called back to a scene, uh, it's usually a bad situation. And uh, at the time of that first call, the family members, maybe they went along with this. We don't know. That's not talked about in the actual court decision. And maybe they agreed to uh, a refusal of care or whatever. Uh, there's no reference to that type of a document um, in here. But uh, they, they certainly change their mind later when their loved one is now deceased. Uh, and they look to us as the experts, as the professionals. Um, and I like to sort of say we sort of have a duty to... Uh, advocate for the patient at all times and uh it's not a good thing when we start diagnosing in the field and i think that's you know one of the lessons to be learned here so i'll i'll stop for a minute and see if anybody has any questions or thoughts on it and uh, we can talk some more about about some of the uh, liability standards that are out there well not not mentioning the fact that these it's and not understanding the entire portion of the case it sounds bad for the crew. Just saying, uh, but mm-hmm. but from from our liability standpoint, at least in the state of Colorado, I always thought as a government employee, we had to have willful and wanton as as a part of the get rid of the the. Uh, and you're laughing, so that mm-hmm. must not be correct. But willful and wanton to get, rid of our, to get rid of our um, ability to be immune from liability. Yeah, well, you sort of got to start with uh, the principle of ordinary negligence, it's called. Okay. Uh, that means in, in our society, you know, we're all expected to conduct ourselves as a reasonable person would conduct himself. You know, whether you're uh, a homeowner and you don't shovel your sidewalk uh, for, uh, during after a snowstorm and everyone else does, but you don't, you're not acting reasonably. Uh you could be held liable if someone were to come and try to go through your sidewalk with all that snow and ice and fall and break their hip. Uh, same thing is true ordinarily of EMS personnel. We would be judged based on how a reasonable and prudent EMS provider, EMT or paramedic, whatever, would conduct him or herself given the same or similar circumstances. That's the ordinary standard of negligence that basically, you know, our our, our legal system is w- well founded on. Now, what happens is what you described, Chris, is now we go into laws that specifically carve out immunities, what we call qualified immunities, meaning it gives us some protection, not full protection. But the laws give us protection and raise the bar, so to speak. Uh, Instead of ordinary negligence, most states do have EMS laws that provide that EMTs and paramedics cannot be liable unless they're grossly negligent Mm -hmm. or willful and wanton misconduct or words to that effect. It's something more than just a mistake. It's it's beyond... uh, 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 typical errors that you might see in normal, ordinary negligence, it's more than that. It's borders on being reckless, okay, to to be able to prove a case against you. Most states have that sort of thing built into their EMS laws, but every one of them, they're different. And if you're a government employee, like in this case here, most states have uh, some laws that provide for official immunity, of some sort while acting within the scope of your official duties or uh, just plain old government immunity because the law, the, you know, uh, legislature recognizes that, hey, you know, the government should be entitled to some immunity of, you know, from damages and so forth. Some states have caps on damage awards against uh, fire police EMS agencies that are that are that are publicly run. If it's not a government agency, then you're typically relying on the qualified immunities through your state EMS Act. Now, I took a look here at Missouri, and it looks like uh, 
Missouri does have a good Samaritan law that relates to what you described, Chris, that says you could only be liable for damages if you're found to be grossly negligent. But the law I could find is applies only if you're uh, doing emergency care without compensation. Uh, so uh, there, there are some states only limit that gross negligence standard to volunteers. There are some states that, that do that. I couldn't find anything where it was broad enough to cover all uh, types of EMS providers, uh, including paid or compensated personnel. There are other immunity laws like DNR immunity. You know, if if you follow the DNR law and and uh, don't resuscitate, there's immunity for from suit from liability for that. AED immunity. There's another carve out over the last ten to fifteen years where. Uh, any person who, you know, uses an AED properly and so forth without being reckless is entitled to immunity. Dispatchers enjoy immunity in many states. So there's a whole range of these immunity laws that are there that change the standard uh, for a plaintiff to, to obtain damages from one of ordinary negligence, like the sidewalk example I gave you, to a situation where, as an EMS person, you have to be uh, well, you know, doing things almost recklessly and with wanton disregard for the consequences of your actions. That's another way gross negligence is described in many cases. So the bottom line is uh, that we as EMS providers, as paramedics and EMTs, enjoy a lot of immunity in most states, okay? In this state, it's a little weird the, the way the statute's structured here, uh, and in this particular case, we're dealing with government employees. So they, uh, you know, advance this argument that they were immune because of official duties, official immunity, and the court just said, "Sorry, that that doesn't cut it here." So uh, that just happens to be how it works in in this state. I don't think there's really any question that what they did was completely and totally wrong. I mean, you know, immunity or not, they did something that was completely outside of their scope of practice. Yeah. Well, whether it's outside of their scope of practice or just plain old laziness or just not, not you know, treating the patient as they should, we don't know all the particulars, but it certainly looks like uh, any time where you see facts in a case where, uh, you know, providers allegedly tell a patient, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, you just must have some indigestion, take some Pepto-Bismol, and then, you know, when they're having other symptoms, that that, that can certainly be a problem. <laughs> and uh, it goes to show you, I tell you, there's a lot going on out there right now. We could really debate why this sort of thing happens, you know, and I, I'll just hit it right up front. I hear people say to me, oh, it's this millennial generation, you know, they're lazy. Well, Frankly, I have seen this kind of thing happen equally with millennials as I have with people who have been in the field 30 or 40 years even. Uh, I don't think this kind of situation happening is uh, based on uh, generational issues, and I've heard that you know levied out there. Now, one thing I do think it's based on, I'll give you an example. One state uh, did an informal uh, survey of uh, refusals of care and you know when you leave a patient behind if you will and and pack up and go home and they noticed an interesting statistic and we could talk about this they noticed that over the course of say a 12-hour shift the number of patient refusals remained fairly flat or sort of like a like a v-fib line going across from hour to hour from hour one two three four five six seven eight all the way to eleven and then between 11 and 12, what do you suppose happened to that V-fib line? It goes up. In terms of number of refusals, bingo, okay, yeah. shoots way up exponentially. Now, do you think maybe that has something to do with the fact that it's the end of the shift? Hmm, got to wonder that, you know. And and uh, there's a lot that needs to be done out there to, to really watch our systems to make sure that we don't fall into this trap of this kind of thing. An average person would look at this, you know, and I always say, you know, how do you want to be judged? You, you, you be judged by the average citizen. And you explain this. If you were to read this same thing I just read to you out here from the case and read it to somebody out on the street and they'd go, oh, my God, I can't believe that happened. You know, when, when a citizen says something like that, you know, something's not right. 
Uh, and we really need to monitor these kinds of calls a lot cl- closer. I know of some EMS systems that do a 100% quality uh, review on every patient refusal. Every time a patient is left behind, uh, they do a 100%. Is there any reason not to? That I don't think there is, frankly. I think it's a very good question. Uh, when you're looking at key points where liability rests, this is one of the top areas. And it's sort of like, you know, we got limited resources to deal with in terms of, you know, reviewing people. First of all, you got people out there, medics and EMTs, are really are working pretty much unsupervised, basically. Let's face it. Uh, and how do we fix problems or catch problems? You know, either through direct supervision, which means a paramedic supervisor or somebody going out to the scene and watching, or online medical command, which we all know is sort of going by the wayside in most systems, or you look well, at it. It's not real oversight. And that's not real oversight. You're right. So then you've got to go back and look at it after the event already happened, and and uh, that can help you prevent future events. But if you fall into a bad one like this, uh, you know, you can end up in a in a disaster situation. Uh, uh, I also like to say this. You know, <laughs> said this the other day at Expo. Actually, at the session I did on documentation, I said, "You have a thousand calls out there, and you've got, you know, say, a hundred people on your staff. It, it it doesn't matter if you did nine hundred and ninety nine of those calls exactly right. All it takes is that one thousandth call to go bad, and you have one or two knuckleheads in your group." who do something wrong for whatever reason, you know, whether they're lazy or burned out, tired, you know, who knows. Uh, you know, we're only as strong as the weakest link in the system. And uh, I, I think we always got to constantly be, be thinking about that whenever we deal with these situations. Steve, has, has anybody ever done research into, our like you just said, our profession at the 11th hour on a 12-hour shift, those refusals go up. How about uh, for a physician who's getting off duty in the emergency room? Does his care change in that last hour or uh, mm-hmm. some some other similar industry where ha- ha- has any research been done into, yep, they're, they're exactly the same as us and it's no, just I human can, behavior? I can yeah. speak to that to some go extent. Um, just, you know, having worked in an ER, it, it is... It, at the end of the physician shift, there's this flurry of activity. So for 12 hours, there's, you know, patients come and go rather slowly. The last hour, that, and I've seen this time and again, that doc just starts processing patients so fast and sending out treatment orders and let's, you know, the last hour or two so that all the patients that came in all night are either admitted or discharged. And I've, I've seen that as just... It was, we were used to it. We were ready to ramp up that last two hours because we knew if we had 10, 10 patients in the ER, it was a relatively small ER, but we had 10 patients, we knew that the doc that was there, and it was every single doctor in the practice, would just start cycling through those orders uh, and, and rapid pace, and we'd have a lot of things to get done in the final two hours of the shift. And um, I, so I, I, that's anecdotal, of course, but I think that um, you know, my experience, and that's happened happened every shift, so I can't, can't imagine that it doesn't happen in other ERs, too. Yeah, I think it does happen in a lot of different places, as, as you suggest, Chris. Uh, and, but the interesting part, like in the ER, for example, at least in an ER situation, there are other people around to pick up the slack, perhaps, or to catch an error or something like that. You know, there's just simply other people there. Uh, in EMS, we're particularly vulnerable because it's just two people out there, you know, in, in the vast majority of the cases. And it's between those two folks. And gosh, you, we all have heard that phrase, as we know, what happens in the, in the, in the truck stays in the truck. Mm. Well, I'm not so sure. I think that's a good approach to follow but we all know that type of thing can happen and uh people will cover up for each other at times and you know it's it's, to answer the question on the studies uh, someone from england sent me a study i hadn't had a chance to i have to dig it up again about this issue uh and i'm sure that there have been studies i i haven't read them myself but i'm sure there's got to be some on uh dealing with uh uh, long shifts and the end of the shift uh, stuff dealing with with the medical community generally, I would think. 
Well, and with that understanding too, I think, at least from from my perspective, it's hard because when when a when an EMT and paramedic go out and they're talking to that patient in their house, they're seen as the medical expert. Absolutely. And it's hard to, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sure that there was some hesitation. Well, I already called the ambulance once for my chest. Mm-hmm. Should I call him again? You know, so I'm sure that there was some of that yeah. in that, in that gentleman's house. So, oh. Yeah. I like to use this example we need to point out. Yeah, go ahead. We need to point out to them that when it comes to initiating refusals, EMS is no kind of expert. The one thing we are consistently bad at is determining who needs to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. If you want to find a good indicator for who ends up in the ICU, it's the people we say don't need to go. Right. There was actually a study on that issue related to emergency physicians. It was about a year ago, and it might have been in Annals of Emergency Medicine. I can't remember. But the study said that even emergency physicians have trouble determining who needs definitive care uh, in the ER based on their limited capabilities and limited resources. And f- imagine how that applies in the EMS where you have even less you know, resource. I think that's a very good point. You know, without really knowing the whole story, I, I think that I think ultimately what happened was uh, the crew the crew issued out a diagnosis that they they really didn't have the proper capabilities to issue out. How how did how did they know with a hundred percent certainty that that patient wasn't having an MI, and they just said, well, it's 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 acid it's it's not an mi how did they come to that determination without having all the tools necessary to make that call yeah well how did they even come to a 50 percent certainty about this it's just an ekg that they're using to uh look at the heart and they're going by their assessment of gee he doesn't look so bad or Mm -hmm. yeah i look like that when i have a bunch of chili and a bunch of other things so yeah he's sweaty and he's pale and uh, he's clutching his chest but that's a good meal for me so you know it's probably just indigestion yeah people who think like that probably shouldn't be in ms whether this crew actually approached it that way we have no idea maybe they got chased out of the house by the wife with a knife or something and, right uh, that's right. why they were only on scene 15 minutes yeah. right we're reading we uh don't just the facts is yeah as the court reported it you're right but i know a lot of people who will show up at the home of somebody who has chest pain or syncope or something else where we know that the only responsible thing to do is transport the patient to the hospital, and they will spend 10, 20, 30 minutes talking the patient out of going to the hospital. Or they'll talk uh, somebody into calling a BLS ambulance to transport for them because they don't want to, and they'll say, hey, it's just indigestion, or uh, he was just lightheaded. It wasn't really syncope. And they find all sorts of ways to excuse their horrible, horrible decision about what's going on. Right. You know, I, I, have to, I have to step in for a minute, though. I'm sorry. I'm going to come in from another point of view. Not everyone that we allow to, let's say, refuse or, or decline transport, not all those are provider-induced. Some of these I've sat on scene for 35, 40, 50 minutes. I've sat on scene for an hour and a half trying to get somebody to go. I've, I've been on the phones with, with patients' physicians. I've been on phones with medical consultation trying to get these people to go. I've had cardiac patients who didn't want to go to the hospital. I've had syncope patients who didn't want to go to the hospital. And I have done everything but physically grabbing this patient and throwing them on the stretcher, which I'm not going to do to that point. And, Steve, I know I've been to a conference with you where you, where you said you'd rather defend me for, for assault and kidnapping than for gross negligence from leaving them behind. But yeah, I've I, I said that. We, <laughs> I, think, I think we have to look at this. You know, we can't just assume that every patient, every provider who does not take a patient to a hospital is negligent or, or is being lazy. Now, I, I agree with you. This situation here, you know, with on scene for a very short amount of time with a patient with chest pain, 
doesn't look really good, you know, and, you know, I think the fiend time pretty much says it to him. But we can't just sit there and say, you know, you, you're a provider. You didn't take him to the hospital. You didn't do the right thing. And I think it's in the same aspect. We have to say, do, does every patient need to go to an ER? I mean, are there now in, in the United States, it's not real popular alternative destinations. It's becoming out, you know, just, you know, um, it's becoming newer to selling services, but, you know, uh, Febrile seizure, you know, you can go down the whole aspect of meningitis and stuff, but most pediatricians would like to see them in the office. Mm-hmm. I wasn't saying that all refusals or even most refusals are like this. It is something, though, that I have seen. I've talked with crews, and you say, why uh, didn't this patient go to the hospital? I was like, oh, it clearly wasn't this. I'm like, well, how do you know? And he said, well, mm-hmm. it didn't look like it. You know, you look at them and you just know. And that's not, and you get the partner telling you, you know, off the record, yeah, uh, the paramedic talked him out of going. That's not something that is rare, but I'm not saying it's most of what happens. And, yeah, I've spent over an hour on scene trying to talk people into going. had a cardiologist with clear ST elevation refusing. And, you know, he's a cardiologist. Mm -hmm. He's got enough information to make uh, an informed decision. Yeah, I think it's the uh, exception rather than the rule. And unfortunately, it's these exceptions that get a lot of attention. But I, I use as a teaching tool uh, the little old lady who's called calls at 2 in the morning uh, or, say, 6 in the morning because it's close to the end of the shift. And the crew gets there, and the poor lady is sitting on the edge of her bed, and she's 80 years old, and she's frail, and she says, Oh, fellas, I'm so sorry I called you. I didn't really want to be a bother, you know. And and the crews, they can go down one of two roads at that point. They're in control. Uh, they can go down the road of saying, Ma'am, you're probably right. Uh, you know, you don't need to bother us, uh, but, you know, you're feeling okay now, so... Maybe you should wait and just, you know, call your doctor, you know, at 9 o'clock and, and, and see what he thinks. And if you sign this form, we'll be on our way. And then the lady would say, okay, I'm so sorry to bother you. Or you go down the other road and say, ma'am, you know, you were, you were obviously distressed enough to call us, even though you're feeling okay now. That's unusual for you. Something could really be going wrong with you. You really need to go to the hospital and get checked out, and you're not a bother to us at all, ma'am, and we want to take you to the hospital. Two different ways of approaching it, you know, and and I think uh, that's the part, that's, the, that's where the rubber meets the road on these cases, uh, I think. And unfortunately, as we said at the beginning here, we, we don't have a lot of good ways of monitoring that, you know, uh, short of having people there on the scene, you know, uh, overseeing it and having others there. And, uh, and that's why we have such vulnerability in these kinds of cases. And we just have to keep going back and, and reeducating everyone not to, you know, be careful about second guessing. And I know no, it's Steve, frustrating, you know, it's Steve, frustrating. That- uh, God, I'm just gonna make this one last point. Frustrating because we are subjected to a lot of abusers of the EMS system. There's no doubt about it. And unfortunately, we're all human beings, and that can affect somehow our decision-making. And it's, you know, like the little boy who cried wolf. You know, he cried so many times people ignored him until when he really needed help. So go ahead. Now, I've done quality assessment, quality improvement, and and looking at a lot of the issues that, that arise. And knowing the people and being in some of those scenes, it wasn't so much the, the care that was provided or wasn't provided. I found a lot of it came down to just the the lack of documentation that they were providing. Yeah, I would say documentation is important, absolutely. But even before that, it's not the care that's provided. It's, it's how people feel about the care you provided, you know. And you can have uh, even mistakes being made, and if you made the person feel good and you treated them with respect and dignity, and it, it can make all the difference in the world. And, yes, then if you do that and all your care is well documented, you know, that's going to be the thing that saves you at the end of the day. And the other part of the problem with these kinds of cases is the fact that refusals and uh, leaving someone behind – requires even better documentation than your typical call. 
uh, because there's so many things to think about. You know, was the person, you know, did they have the mental capacity to make a decision? Did did you explain the risks? Did you document that you explained the risks? You know, what did the patient say in response to that in their own words? What about family members? You know, there's a lot more stuff that needs to be documented here uh, on these kinds of cases. But it's you, all about feel- informed versus not informed versus in this case, in Missouri, misinformed. I mean, ultimately, yeah, we have go. to be an advocate. We, we have to advocate for our patient's best interest, and these guys failed to do that, grossly failed to do that. Do you know of any emergency physician who would discharge a chest pain patient without getting a troponin on them? Yes. <laughs> well, okay. oh, in New York State, maybe, you know, whatever. <laughs> One specific one, but we won't talk about that. No, well, I think that's a good point. And I also think that, again, it's it kind of speaks for itself. And it really talks to the fact that they did not use all the tools at their disposal to determine if the, if the gentleman was having an MI or not. Nowhere in the first t- part of the argument does it talk about them putting on a 12 lead or, I mean, again, without reading all of the... It's not... Go ahead. It doesn't really tell us what happened. No, it doesn't, but... Yeah, I just pretty much paraphrase the facts as identified in the official report of the case. You know, that's right. all. Well, and that's what I've read, too, but it doesn't... It does yeah. say, I mean... It was pretty explicit as far as the Maalox Gaviscon, but it didn't talk, and and they obtained a set of vital signs, but it didn't talk about the EKG until the second part. So that that tells me at some point they they must have realized that they didn't do one on on the... But uh, how much information have they actually gathered on this case? Have they done more than scan over the chart and say, okay, there's ECG, there's uh, a comment about indigestion, and we'll put those in the complaint. When you actually go to trial, that's when you get all the details. And this is just a preliminary hearing to determine if you have the merits to actually have a case uh, heard in a courtroom. Steve, So all they need to show is that there is immunity or there isn't immunity at this point. Yeah, but correct me if I'm wrong. I bet they've been de- deposed, right? Uh, yeah, typically at this point, all the discovery has been conducted, all the documents exchanged, numerous depositions would have been done. Then motions for summary judgment to dismiss are based not on the hear- on a hearing. There is no hearing typically on these. Uh, it's based on the official record in the discovery. So the depositions, which are official court testimony, you know, the documents, and then on the basis of those, all that discovery, uh, that's when they file the motion for summary judgment, typically. And this was really just a legal question, you know, of whether this law would apply. So they didn't really have to get too much into the facts of the case, just enough to reach the conclusion that this wasn't an emergent situation where you would expect to have some immunity because of the lack of information you'd have in an emergency, you know. In fact, very interesting point that this court said at the end, it's well worth pointing this out to everybody. Um, uh, they argued, the the, uh, the EMS providers in the organization argued that by failing to provide this blanket official immunity to publicly employed emergency responders in all situations will cause hesitancy by those responders resulting in an increased risk to the patients. Well, uh, you know, they the court said, well, well, the strict emergency requirement would apply here. And also, basically, you know, they b- believe that quite the opposite uh, uh, of causing hesitancy in treatment, this approach of not applying the immunity in this non-emergent type situation would actually encourage responders, this is what the court said, encourage responders to spend more time with patients and be more thoughtful in their diagnosis to not act rashly when time is not of the essence. I think it's a very good teaching point right there by reading that uh, statement right out of the decision. I was going to say that's a little damning. 
Yeah, it's like, okay, look, this is, you know, this first call they were on was clearly, you know, the, not that emergent to the point that it should have clouded their judgment, you know, that they they didn't have to act quickly like you would in a crisis, a mass casualty situation or a multiple patient thing or a critical patient, you know. They had the time. They could have spent the time, as someone just said, trying to convince the patient to go you know someone said they've spent up to an hour doing that yeah maybe they could have done that here that's what the court said well wait a minute you know you should be you know acting in a deliberative way to to uh think about this and that's why you shouldn't have the immunity for this you know yeah don't say oh well what about the next patient you know what if something happens while we're committed to this call and that doesn't matter but right. this is EMS, and that's the way so many people in EMS think. It's completely idiotic. The people should be taken out and shot, but they will make that claim. And a friend of mine, her father ended up going to the ICU because a medic told him he didn't need to go to the hospital. And I went with her to talk to the township about it. And they said, oh, but there was a, a bus crash right at that time. So what? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what you have mutual aid for. The butt- <laughs> yes. So you, and, had, so you had a bus crash plus one patient. Sorry. You know, you still have another patient to yeah. take care of. Yeah. They're saying, but they're little kids. And there so. was nobody apparently <laughs> transported from that. And it actually didn't happen at the same time. They're just making excuses for why they did the wrong thing. And, you know, we're supposed to be in EMS because we're trying to help the patient, not make excuses for why we didn't do anything. Yeah, I like That's, what I, you just said there, yeah. I think these guys forgot one of the very basic rules of healthcare all chest pains considered cardiac until proven otherwise. And we cannot Absolutely. prove it. We cannot disprove it because we don't have troponins. I think the the interesting point that that was made when he was when they were talking about how um, not having this immunity would cause second guessing that could actually uh, delay treatment. I actually think not having this immunity would actually uh, would would actually. Uh, sorry, I'm tripping over my words here, but it would make it to where. Uh, you would actually, because it seems to me like it seems to me that these guys, or at least the way the mentality's sitting, is that, oh well, we'll get a refusal, we're protected, it's okay. Versus, hey, we could be liable for this. We need to really check this out and make sure that this guy does not need to go to the hospital. Yep, and that's exactly what the court says in so many words. You know, uh, so it is a, a wake-up call for you know certainly EMS personnel in Missouri, but for from you know around the country as well to be careful and making sure that in those cases where you've got the time, take the time. You know, use your time, and uh, uh, you know the courts and the juries are going to be more lenient toward you if. You're caught in a bad situation with, you know, a critical patient with only so many. You got only so many hands to do things. You know, you only start so many IBs and and push so many tubes and drugs. You know, as one or two people, courts are going to be more sympathetic when you've been overwhelmed. You know, and we all get overwhelmed when we're out on the street. You know, uh, and uh, you got to do your best. That's what triage is all about and priority prioritization and all that jazz and here they said sorry that 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 wasn't any evidence of that you know couldn't have been an emergency emergent situation that would would cause that problem if they're suggesting the person take pepto-bismol you know but, i think you know. and that is also what was reported by uh, probably the people filing the complaint so we don't know if that came from uh, the EMS or from the family, and the EMS said, "Yeah, that could work." Because um, you know, on refusals, I've said that it may be something yeah. that Alox will fix, but right. we have no way of determining that. And I try to stress the negative part of it because I can't determine that it's not a heart attack. I, I think Steve, you made a good point, and, and when I see things like this, I. I try to 
to bring it back around and say, all right, where's the lesson? What, what does the you know, person listening to this show or listening to one of my episodes, what do they, what do they take away from somebody that maybe has made a mistake, such as um, you know, pronouncing someone who wasn't actually dead, um, that which happens all too frequently, mm-hmm. too. And it comes down to following simple, basic assessment procedures. Mm-hmm again and again and again and establishing a common routine where you're going to treat every patient you get a you got a patient complaining of chest pain or heck anything between their belt and their their nose i'm going to go ahead and put an i um put uh, leads on them and get a 12 lead because i want to know what's going on and even if that doesn't show anything i've got to use a reasonable suspicion and I think there's that dangerous word "reasonable" again, but mm-hmm. you know you need to you need to err on the side of caution. Um, it was brought up again uh, about troponins. Well, like, you know even troponins aren't perfect. You've got to you know take several hours sometimes for that to manifest to the point that it's readable. So that patient needs to be in the hospital uh, where they can be monitored while we do continuous blood draws until we are sure it's just you know just reflux. Well, and this guy was diagnosed with not only an MI, but a PE. And mm-hmm. a PE isn't going to well, show up. Did he have an MI? Well, it says both. He had a pulmonary embolism. It, it, oh, it cardiac says cardiac arrest and right. pulmonary embolism. All right, there you go. So he, wouldn't, he may not so, have shown up on yeah. either an EKG yeah. or troponins. You'd have to do for you the roll out. You roll out a heart attack, and you leave him there, and he's still dead. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, as you just described there, it's the, you know, the reason pilots go through a checklist, you know, you wouldn't want to get on a plane unless the pilot went through every item on that checklist. It's the same thing we should be doing in the field. Follow the checklist, you know, follow the procedures. I wonder what their refusal procedure is like out there, though. I mean, is it just medic's discretion? I've seen a lot of places that have had problems similar to this where, there is supervisory involvement required. There's medical control and involvement. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Do they have any of those checks and measures? I mean, I'm a yep. supervisor in my system. An automatic activation and response for me is is any address where we have had a refusal in the previous 24 hours. That isn't well. That's very good, and there should be procedures, but that varies all over the country. I've seen refusal forms that are simple and just simply say. I refuse the care and treatment and transport against the advice of the paramedics, period, you know, and release them from all liability, period. That's it. On our website, we've got a, uh, we call it an informed decision-making form, or, you know, it's not even called a refusal form. It's an informed decision-making form, and it has checklists where you go through it. A lot of states, Pennsylvania's adopted a similar model. Uh, many states are adopting a, a sort of a checklist-driven uh, refusal form that sort of forces you to go through that exercise of, you know, calling medical command, uh, you know, is the person experiencing suicidal ideations? Yes, no. You know, these are the triggers that say the person shouldn't be allowed to refuse care, uh, those kinds of things. So, uh, yeah, we need to have good procedures on this, that's for sure. I think that... This is just another case of, of and, and we don't know what's like. We said there's a lot of there's a lot of holes in in, in some of the mm-hmm. facts that are displayed here, and and so I don't I try not to paint a broad brush. But I know in my experience, I have run into situations where I've, I've had people describe another provider to me as, "Well, that guy can get a refusal out of anybody." Well, mm-hmm. that's not something that anybody should strive to be <laughs> if you're an EMS right. provider. Exactly. You shouldn't you be know, the guy who can talk yeah. anyone into a refusal. Yeah, I've heard the opposite, too. I've heard, you know, someone say that that person's a good medic. Uh, he or she can get 100% of the patients to go to the hospital. He or she's very good at convincing them to go. I, I, I like that approach better. <laughs> so, and again, I think we're well, talking about the exceptions. I, I think we're talking about these this very small percentage of cases we hear about them but but it doesn't matter you could have 99 good ones and all you need is one bad one you know that's the problem i think don't be forcing them to go to the hospital either we're supposed to be there to help them deal with their emergency if their emergency is no longer an emergency when we show up and they don't want to go we shouldn't be yelling at them oh you're going to die if you don't go to the hospital i've seen people who do that and that's just as bad 
I think regardless of, of whether the this particular crew is right or wrong, I think it illustrates the fact that basically what we've been talking about all night is the fact that we have to do really good assessments. We have to do really good documentation to make mm-hmm. sure that when this comes up that we have everything in order where we can say, look, this is what we did. And this is, and, you know, and this is the documentation that proves this is what we did. Mm-hmm. That's very good. I agree with that a hundred percent. Well, and it also falls back on systems. I mean, there's two levels here. What do the providers do to protect themselves from this type of action mm-hmm. in the future? And also, uh, what what are the systems going to do to both have some kind of oversight on refusals and also uh, change the culture because. There are systems that have this problem running rampant, and there are other systems that have dealt with it in a proactive manner and have come up with a a solution to deal with that 11th hour refusal spike. Um, There there are ways to do that. There are ways to encourage uh, employees who are tired at the end of their shift to continue to to strive for excellence. And uh, that's a motivational issue as well as a compliance issue. Right. Well, you know, one of the things that I really think is very unfair to the EMS provider is when there are system problems and then when something goes wrong the the system blames the individual and it takes some gumption it takes some good management to to say wait a minute why did this occur what's the root cause of this problem okay and if you start digging into it and you find out you've got no good procedure on informed consent and informed refusals then is it really the individual EMT or paramedics uh, fault? You know, well, to a degree, it is. Sure, we all have professional responsibilities, individuals. But you know, it's more the fault of the system in 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 many of these cases. I think that's personal opinion. There, I guess. You can talk a lot about the system, though. I I also think that that what we're also looking at here is is. A, a, a trend where people fail to take personal responsibility for their actions as well. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. there, there does come a certain point where you need to be a good paramedic for yourself and for your patients and not, you know, worry about how the system tells you to do things. I mean, I, we see it all the time. Right. I, I see it all the time in my system is you get certain situations where certain medics are, you know, not comfortable with refusals and will go above and beyond to make sure that they have all their I's dotted and their T's crossed and they've completely inform their patients and then you have other situations where people won't do that and then when something happens it's the fault of the system because those oh sure balances sure there's there's a book i'm reading it's called the question behind the question it's a pretty good management book and the opening line in the book is it talks about a billboard in texas or somewhere with simple statement on the billboard what happened to personal responsibility question mark That catches some eyes. <laughs> Without a doubt. And that, that, I think, is the root of a lot of the system issues that we're seeing here with Tim mentioning how, you know, we have a younger generation working and everything. I think it's just people failing to take personal responsibilities. A very wise man, Mr. Skip Kirkwood, once said that if, if you act in your patient's best interest, you can always be backed up. It's when the paramedic puts their needs first that they end up falling short and end up doing things that they shouldn't be doing. And that's the perfect example right. of those 11th hour refusals. And that goes beyond refusals. That goes to 11th hour care too. Because I'm sure if you looked at it, you're not just seeing a spike in refusals, but you'll also see a considerable dip in call time. And how is the care that the patient's receiving suffering because we simply show up and rush them to the hospital rather than doing that complete assessment that they should that they would be getting in the 6th or 7th hour that they're not getting in the 11th. And transport yeah, decisions... I was, I- I was not saying that it's the younger providers. I think this is more of a problem with the old-timers, the ones who think that they know enough that they can just look at a patient and tell what's going on. Sometimes yeah, I think we it crosses But it's not something I want to bet the patient's life on. By the way, the book I mentioned, it is all about personal accountability. It's called QBQ, The Question Behind the Question, and it is written by uh, John Miller, and he's written a number of other very good uh, books on uh, management and accountability. So, Steve, without revealing, well, maybe not, I don't know. I, I guess part of my thought, too, is more education in our system would be better for, 
I don't know, helping the paramedics determine, you know, in this case, when it says diagnose, yeah, okay, I have a state medical director that says we diagnose all the time, and I have to agree with them. But I also have to say that with more education, couldn't we, would it help the paramedics um, in the long term be able to help these pa- help patients and maybe decrease the refusals or at least give patients mm-hmm. another option? I don't know. I, I could be well. My old mentor when I was in emergency care in Erie, uh, Earl Gettinger, rest in peace, he passed on. Uh, he taught me how to do case reviews, and we did them in the 1980s. And the best way, I think, to teach people is to take a case like this and just simply hash it out, kick it around, and talk about it like we're talking about it. And And you'll find that in a small group discussing a case like this, the folks in that group come to the same conclusions we do, you know, right. they, and they learn that way by saying, you know, wow, that could happen to me. And you talk about about it just like we're talking about here. So case reviews, I think, are a very underutilized approach to uh, addressing a lot of these problems. And you know what? I think it's a function of we just don't have the time to do them. We're strapped for staffing, uh, and a lot of systems are lucky if they can find a warm body to put in the seat of the ambulance, let alone have you know, time to take out to, to do these kinds of things. But I think we need to get back to these kinds of things. Well, but I, I think case review is great. Um, I think better, the, the closer to your system the case review, the better it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, oh, yeah, use your own cases. But I think that oftentimes we... We as an industry have turned it in case review into this thing where it's finger pointing and it's not very collegial. And we're trying to turn that. We're trying to change that in our. You're uh, right. In our agency, but it turns into a finger pointing and somebody going, "Oh, you did that wrong," and the, you know the manager standing up and and getting all red faced and and it just it does nobody any good. But if we go back to this idea that it's collegial and everybody learns from mm-hmm. it, and actually allowing the provider that did the call to present the case, yeah, like in mm-hmm. medical school would make a exactly. lot of sense. Make a lot of sense. There should be ground rules for these things, and you know, so that. Uh, you try to minimize that kind of thing, but yeah, regardless, of you you're always going to have a little bit of finger pointing. But if you can, if you have a good facilitator and good ground rules for everyone to follow, these things can be very uh, helpful. That's just one one of many solutions or th- suggestions I'm sure that we could think of to help deal with these kinds of issues. Right on. Sometimes you find that the people doing the finger pointing the most are the ones who do the same thing, <laughs> but they're trying to make it look like uh, this guy did something wrong this one time. This doesn't apply to me, and they're going to avoid learning from it. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what happens. And the thing that the judge finished up with about how the providers will think on scene, I doubt that any of them are really thinking about what kind of liability they have. I doubt they're really aware of what kind of liability they have. They either think, well, I'm EMS, I'm golden, nobody can do anything to me. Or they would say, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that'll change too much with this, except for the people who actually pay attention to what's going on with this case. Right, right. Well, I think I'm going to have to sign off. Well, I was going to just say we need to. That's a perfect way to end the podcast. So, uh, let me just say thank you guys for joining us, James Warmoth. Where can people find you, Yellow Rubber Ducky Man? Yeah, they can find me at yellowrubberducky.squarespace.com. <laughs> love that. I love that. Maybe they can find pictures of your baby there. Not yet, but hopefully later on tonight, if I can get a chance, I'll put some up. Oh, that's right cool. On. Congratulations. Right on. Oh, that baby's cute, too. Uh, Mr. Kyle David Bates, where can people find you? You can find me at Image Medic on Twitter, kylededbates.com, or over at firstfewmoments.com for our podcast and our course. Very cool. We're beating our darts. Mr. Scott Keir, where can people find you? Yes, sir. You can find me on Twitter at MedicSBK, or check out my blog, 2010ems.blogspot.com. Very cool. Mr. Jamie Davis, the pod medic. Besides Vegas, where can people find you? <laughs> Vegas, baby. I just I can't get out of my head. I can't wait to get there. But um, you can find me over at um, mediccast.com, 
slash blog. That's the MedicCast blog and, of course, my show and Chris's show and a bunch of other great programs are all over at the ProMed Network, promednetwork.com. Very cool. And Mr. Tim Noonan, where can people find you? Sasquatch.com. <laughs> no, actually, that's the Bigfoot website. Nice try, though. I think it's RogueMedic or something like that, right? Yes, RogueMedic.com and Paramedicine101.com, both at EMSBlogs.com. Very cool. And last but certainly not least, our our guest tonight, Mr. Steve Worth. Where can people find you? And get a well, I don't. I don't tweet and Twitter much, so you just go to the website, pwwemslaw.com, pwwemslaw.com. And they can find you on Facebook, too. Yeah, I guess they can find me there. If you want them to find you. I'm buried in there somewhere. (laughs) Thanks. Well, thank you, Steve, for coming on tonight. Great to be here and good talking to you all and good discussion. You bet. Absolutely. And thank you guys so much for talking to us this week. Join us next week when we have a special episode from EMS Expo. And we'll be back in two weeks talking more about issues that concern you in EMS and maybe even talking about the fire department that let the house burn, which would be a lot of fun. Oh, my. (laughs) That's a great. Oh, that's going to be a good topic. My name is Chris Montera. I'm the Geeky Medic. Join us next time when we talk about more about issues. When we talk more about issues that concern you and EMS, apparently I can't talk either tonight. Have a good night. I'm starting a chat, and I'll just share the file with you guys. Oh, and Tim Noonan's coming on, too. The Noonster. Noonan. The EMS version of Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <Big> Sasquatch medic. <laughs> uh, the only pictures that exist for, of him are, are blurry and out of focus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, Tim, we're talking about you, in case you're wondering. Nessie hey, medic. you know what? I always feel blurry and out of focus. A geeky medic. It says the call host is using an old version of Skype. Yeah. That, what's it's, up with that? It's because I'm on a Mac. And when you're on Windows, it just, I don't know why they don't talk very well. So, anyway. All right, hang on. I'm in the Skype conference here. I'll send you guys the file, and then we shall get started.